Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. In this episode, we are going to cover a few of the past months or a couple of months worth of interesting papers. And we've each focused on a single idea. I'm not going to say paper because that never happens here on Exocast. Hey, I just got one paper this time. <laughs> Andrew's got one this time. Well done, Andrew. I've got two listed. Oh, I've, I've got three. But I'm just going to select one. <laughs> Andrew is going to be talking about some of the latest radio stuff from SETI. Hugh is covering three papers, Hugh. Three. Uh, on AF Lep B. Briefly covering. Briefly covering. Same three. planet. Sure, we'll see that when it happens. And I'm going to be talking about the cosmic shoreline. What the hell is that, you ask? But over to Andrew first. What have you got for us from the world of radio? Okay, thank you, Hannah. So we often discuss the possibility of detecting life on distant worlds on our, on the show, but perhaps we haven't given appropriate airtime, so to speak, to the possibility of life detecting us, or rather our communications from light years away. So in a paper entitled Simulation of the Earth's Radio Leakage from Mobile Towers as Seen from Selected Nearby Stellar Systems, that will appear in June's Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, University of Mauritius doctoral student and SETI Institute intern Ramiro Saide, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and team attempt to quantify from crowdsource data how much noise we're collectively generating to figure out if evidence of our ongoing civilizational party is starting to reach the neighbours, maybe starting to bother them, who knows. So for students in my introduction to astrobiology class who might be studying for the exam in a few weeks, this is a great example of a techno signature. We could put that in. So we've been broadcasting on radio waves since 1906 and transmitted the first TV images 20 years later, or in 1926, so our communications bubble has extended about 100 light years from the Earth already, despite the fact that we now have fewer powerful TV and radio transmitters today than we once did. Nevertheless, relatively more modern technology like mobile communication, facilitated by network towers or cellular towers, are also broadcasting our communications, uh, including cat memes and questionable reality shows, into space at a prodigious rate. Each mobile phone on Earth is essentially a low-power radio transmitter and receiver when integrated across the billions of devices on this planet every day that adds up to quite a significant emission. The theory is, the method is, as the Earth rotates on its axis, different non-uniformly distributed networks of cellular communication towers rise and set relative to different observers, allowing the authors to generate a periodic power spectrum of the Earth's communication leakage when viewed from three nearby stars. So they selected one northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere and equatorial. The theory is, as mobile towers emit maximum power towards the horizon, the extraterrestrial observer will be detecting the maximum signal when on the local horizon of the mobile tower. So, with that method, the authors conclude that the peak output leaking into space from mobile towers is around 3 gigawatts, and associated with LTE mobile tower technology from the east coast of China, as viewed from the nearby M-Dwarf HD95735. They also note another strong emission on the order of about 3.5 gigawatts in the direction of Alpha Centauri A, which comes mainly from the west of Asia and Central Europe. 
Interestingly, Earth's mobile radio signature also includes a substantial contribution from developing African countries, with the authors noting that many countries in Africa have bypassed the analogue landline stage of communications to move directly to a digital age and actually are uh, high, more highly represented than we might expect. However, unless distant listeners on planets orbiting these stars have much more advanced technology than the Green Bank Telescope that was used as an example in the study, which is certainly a possibility, should they exist, and they also happen to have pointed their very powerful receiver in our direction at just the right time, Saide and team conclude that it is still very unlikely that nearby alien civilizations will be able to detect our mobile tower transmissions even in this gigawatt range. However, they also note that they haven't included some really powerful sources of communications in the study, namely civilian and military radar, very difficult to get numbers for those, digital broadcast systems, Wi-Fi network, and the satellite constellations that have reached low Earth orbit now, or that have been recently inserted into low Earth orbit. We've got many thousands of satellites there in low Earth orbit as it is, with more coming by the end of the, uh, the decade, probably over 100,000 satellites. So we're very, very bright in the radio part of the spectrum as it is, and we'll probably get more so. This is probably because of the detectability of our mobile systems will increase substantially as we move to more powerful broadband systems in the near future, 5G, as well as our listening technology will improve. So with ideal conditions, the authors found that a, a full square kilometre array should be able to detect the equivalent radiative power of about 300 gigawatts, which is approaching the power levels associated with the 4G uh, leakage signature towards HD 95735 of about 4 gigawatts. I mean, we're two, two orders of magnitude lower, but <laughs> we're approaching. So I like this paper. It was, well, one, it's a fun paper about, about aliens, which we like. <laughs> two, I like it because it encourages us to think about the anthropogenic technosphere, I guess, from a, a different perspective, to step out of the Earth, so to speak, to consider how insights from our own technological development can inform strategies of how we might look for extraterrestrial technologies elsewhere and their associated technosignatures. And to help us realise that the Earth is not a closed system when it comes to communications. You know, should a, a nearby neighbour have access to, you know, really powerful technology, they might be already listening into our meaningless babble as it is. So, um, yeah, uh, a fun paper. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess what the radio signal as a function of latitude is almost like the population density, right? That you're able to mm. probe from the next star over. That's that's crazy to think about. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm just working out if there's like a limited to just the northern hemisphere then, the number of radio towers. Uh, well, uh, I, I guess essentially it would probably be limited mainly to the global north. But as you say, a, a combination of population density and arguably economic economic inequalities and, and, and investment in those areas. But in the paper, the authors did note the uh, anomalous, um, the anomalous, uh, I guess, power of Australia as, as being a bit of an outlier <laughs> near the poles uh, that would that could produce quite an interesting interesting signal. But as Hugh said, essentially it is mapping, it's a proxy for, for population and economic development in a way. And I don't think there's any coincidence that we're seeing this huge this huge spike from the east coast of, of China, which obviously has a huge population density, as well as I think the, the second one was associated with Western Europe, which again, one might expect mm. because of the population density there. So yeah, again, just giving us that opportunity to think about how we might connect this to different proxy measurements of energy output, of civilizational development, of population density. I don't know, a cool paper, got me thinking. Yeah. Ton more variables to put in your models. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think we'll make it make it to this level just yet. But uh, why not? You know, like I say, I think it was it was robustly done. I like the methods. Um, I'm sure observers might be able to pick 
fix some issues there. Why they picked those stars in particular, apart from them just being northern northern, southern and equatorial, I guess you could make a better case for maybe some more planet-bearing stars that are maybe somewhat closer. You could have, could have chosen a, a better selection. But if they are representative, I think it at least puts us in the ballpark of, of getting a number on this and saying, hey, actually, we're only two orders of magnitude away from being very noisy. So maybe we should just be aware of that. Probably not going to be, are we? <laughs> it's not one of the considerations when someone's building yeah, a new radio tower. Possibly. Are aliens going to be listening into this? <laughs> What should we put on here? Um, you know, if they're listening right now to this broadcast of Exocast, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Exocast. Okay, enough from me uh, speculating about yeah, aliens. Let's hear about some me. science, shall it's, we? <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. I'm going to give a, a nice quick rundown of a new paper which only just come out and... Full disclosure, I am on this paper. However, none of the work was done by me at <laughs> all. Uh, I was part of the proposing team for this, this program, uh, which is called the 1981. That is our identifier on JWST. Uh, it is the 1981 team. And this is one of a number of planets that we, we've been looking at with this program. And it was published and led by Sarah Moran and Kevin Stevenson and the whole team here. So this paper is titled High Tide or Riptide on the Cosmic Shoreline, <laughs> which Andrew is, is enjoying. So I love a good title. That's quite poetic, quite evocative, full of like, you know, figurative language. It's quite cryptic, nice. though. It is a little bit cryptic, which is why you need the second part of the title, which is where all of the scientific details come in. A water-rich atmosphere or... Stellar contamination for the warm super-Earth GJ486b from JWST observations. So you've got that, like, kind of, like, little tantalising question at the beginning. And then you've got some details as to what might actually be in the paper. But Sarah Moran, who is a postdoc at University of Arizona, is excellent at coming up with titles. In fact, she came up with the title of the program, the, 80, the 1981 team. The title of our proposal to JWST was called Tell Me How I'm Supposed to Breathe With No Air. And the program is to look at a series of small super-Earth worlds around small cool stars to ask the fundamental question. And this is the fundamental question a lot of teams around the world are asking of JWST when looking at small planets. Does this planet have an atmosphere? That's it. That's the only question. Does it have an atmosphere at all? Uh, so to do this, they were looking at this small warm planet. So GJ 486b is about 700 Kelvin. So this is without assuming that it's got a thick blanket atmosphere around it. So that's its starting point. It can only get probably hotter or depending on how reflective its atmosphere might be, colder from that point. But it's around 700 Kelvin. So it is relatively warm. It's not a nice earth temperature. It is a super earth. It is about 1.3 times the radius of our planet and about three times its mass but it is orbiting a very small cold star. So the star itself is about half the temperature of our sun, but about a third the size. So it's much, much smaller and it is much colder. And that temperature difference is really, really key for these planetary atmospheres, these planets, these planetary systems in general. The planet itself 
is on a 1.5 day orbit around the star. So a year for this planet is one and a half days. And that means that it is very likely, in fact, it's probably certainly tidally locked to its star. So it's got a permanent day side and a permanent night side. So the observations were conducted with JWST using the near spec instrument and one of the high resolution gratings, G395H. And that means that it's looking over wavelengths in the infrared between about 2.8 to about five microns. So critically in this wavelength range, you've got absorption signatures from gases like water, methane, CO, CO2. So you've got a whole host of different kinds of materials we can be looking for in these planetary atmospheres to determine whether or not there is an atmosphere there at all. One of the key things that we're looking for in these wavelength ranges are that water, the methane and the CO2. Those will have the strongest signatures if they are present in this planet's atmosphere. So for this planet, it's a small planet. It's a fairly bright star, but it's still really, really tiny signals that we're looking at. So we took two transit observations of this planet as it passed in front of its star to measure its atmosphere and the absorption of it. From those two transit observations, there were three independent data analysis and reductions. So that's taking the images of the, the stellar spectrum from the telescope and three independent people with independent pipelines reduced that data down to measuring the light curves and the transit depth as a function of the wavelength. So question, does the planet have an atmosphere? Answer, maybe. Boo. <laughs> boo, boo. But something, you know, kind of different about this is that the spectrum isn't a flat line. It isn't scattered around a flat line. It does have structure to it. And that structure suggests that there's evidence of water vapor. So water in the gas form, again, this is about 700 Kelvin. If the water is associated with the planet, it is gaseous. But there is evidence in the spectrum that there is water vapour. The actual question that we have now is, is that water vapour associated with the planet and an atmosphere around that planet? Or is it in fact associated with the star itself? So I said that the star is small, cold, red star. It's about 3,300 Kelvin. Now, stars are dynamic themselves. They have faculae, so bright spots, large magnetic fields. They have rotation rates. They have activity. They have star spots. And star spots are critically cooler parts of the star's surface. And in those cooler parts of the star's surface, there is potential for water to exist in the star, right? So there is a question remaining from this data that the water could be associated with the planet, therefore the planet has an atmosphere, or the water could be associated with faculae and spots on the star, which is imprinting itself on that transit signature. Because what we're seeing when the planet passes in front of the star is a change in that light. But if there's a star spot that's rotating into view, or if there's star spots all over the star, then their contribution increases when you block out a small part of the star's photosphere that doesn't have spots on it. So you see that contribution from the star itself is increased when you block out a part of the star, or that 
it genuinely could be from the planet. So one of the really nice things about this investigation that the team did is they really went through it in this really structured way. They asked the question, how are we measuring it? Do all of our measurements look the same? We've got two transit events. Do the two transits look the same? We've got three reductions. Do the three reductions of the two transits look the same? Okay, we've got our transmission spectrum, or we have a spectrum as a function of wavelength for this system. Let's model it. If we take a series of models, which we put in specific physics and chemistry, or if we ask the data to define what it wants from those models, so in a retrieval versus these forward models where you predefine things, we model two different scenarios, one where you assume that it's the planet and one where you assume that it's the star. And from these two different scenarios, they essentially produce the same amount of evidence. So you cannot currently, with this data, distinguish between whether or not it is coming from the planet or from the star. But what I love is that they had the guts to ask the question. You see a spectrum. I'm sure a reviewer would have asked, right? So it's almost preempting right? that. Exactly. And, and there's a number of different models that done in the forward model, which is asking, okay, well, what if it was a pure water atmosphere? What if it's a pure methane atmosphere, pure CO2? You know, taking these individual scenarios. What if it was an Earth-like atmosphere? Does it fit to any of them? And the answer is, is no. Oh. Not really. Does it fit in no atmosphere? If this was a bowling ball planet, as what we call them, what does that? What evidence does that hold? And they all have moderate evidence that say it could be any of these, but the highest evidence is that there's something there, and that something is associated with water, but again, cannot distinguish between the star and the planet. And that's really refreshing, and I hope we see a yeah. lot more of that, because not only does that say here's the scientific method, but it also goes, here's how we can answer this in, with future measurements. So what they've done is they projected that to different wavelengths and said, here's where we need to look next. If we want to distinguish between these two things, this is what we need to do as scientists. And I love that. I love that aspect. But I will, I, I will say my favorite figure actually is figure five, which is nothing to do with the planet at all. It is the measured spectrum of the star with JWST. This is the most precise measurement of this kind of star that we have in these wavelength ranges ever. So it should be more of a big deal. That's amazing. It's like exquisite detail in this star. Absolutely gorgeous spectrum. Um, and one of the, the authors on the paper fit a number of stellar models. So what we assume stars to look like to these, and they're pretty accurate. We were quite impressed by it. But some evidence from that. So we're fitting the star's light. So this is before and after the transit events. So the planet's not in this data. And if you fit this data of just the star with models, it suggests that the star itself does indeed likely have spots and faculae. So there is that kind of slight additional evidence that this might not be associated with the planet. But again... We've got to test that. So I, I'm excited to see what else we can learn about this small little world and also about these kinds of stars. JWST is really going to open up our knowledge of these small stars because, again, we're measuring the spectra of these stars better than we've ever done before. This sounds like a great you know, methodological approach and well 
balanced with the limitations and, and, and the possible outcomes here. But of course, we've discussed water vapor detections uh, on this on this show before. How do you feel like it's once you've released this paper to the to the ether? How has it been received? Has it been reported well? Because that's usually where things start to break down. You have no control once it's out there. No. And yeah, like everything, there are people who are taking this completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mention of water vapor found in a small yeah. atmosphere, like small planet's atmosphere, is just sets alarm bells ringing, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And and it kind of a number of them have missed the nuance there, or in the star, yeah. it's in the um, title. But the, you put it in the title. It's this in the time. title. I mean, you couldn't have done any better with that. <laughs> and it's in the title of the press release. Yeah. And the Space Telescope Science Institute and NASA, who released the original press release, did have it very clearly in the in the first sentence. You know. We don't know the origin of this water, but water is there. Yeah. But yes, as always, we will see. And and I think, I don't know, Hugh, you've been kind of looking at this, but I, I felt like it's less than what we've seen previously. I feel yeah. like it's getting less. I feel like it's often the titles as well. And actually the text will contain the nuance, but the title, which is trying to grab people who don't really appreciate astronomy or don't know the field or whatever, they uh, they go for this eye-catching water vapor in a earth-like or you know earth-sized planet atmosphere but but actually the text often did have some of the nuance but you had to search for it right which is not mm. the way it should be but that seems to be the way it typically is yeah we'll see exocast Okay, well, what about your papers, Hugh? As you've got quite a few to run us through, right? Well, I thought I had one, and then I realised that there were three near-identical papers on the same planet that were, that were announced in February. So this planet is AF-LEP-B. So LEP, I think, is Leopard... The, the Leopard... I don't remember what the constellation for LEP is. I'm not, I'm not an astronomer. <laughs> Lepardis. I have no idea, honestly, Hugh. But yes, so th- there were three papers announced because they all used the same technique, effectively, and detected a new directly imaged planet. If you look at the methods we've used to find planets thus far, you know, um, transits and RVs are really winning if the race is to get as many as possible. And direct imaging and especially astrometry are lagging way behind. You know, direct imaging has about 20 planets which have been imaged and found that way, while astrometry has, I think, just one or two detections of planets at the moment. But actually, some talented astronomers have recently realised that the winning strategy is to combine these two techniques, so to combine astrometry and direct imaging and find planets that way. And part of the reason this is possible now is because of Gaia's extraordinarily precise measurements of stellar positions and velocities. So Gaia hasn't actually released the raw data yet, so um, which will directly allow the astrometric detections of thousands of giant planets, actually. in uh, Even, I think it's the end of next year, that data release should, should come out. But what it has released is the positions and velocities of the stars. And what these astronomers have been able to do is to look at the difference between those measurements to the last high-precision star mapper, uh, Hipparchus, which was another ESA satellite, which actually launched in the 80s and, and, and ended in the early 90s. And so by looking at the difference in the velocities between those two measurements, there's actually been multiple or many thousands of stars have been seen to uh, have accelerations, so changes in velocity over that time. And this led to the Hipparchus Gaia catalogue of accelerations, which was released a couple of years ago. Uh, and this is basically stars who appear to have sped up or slowed down in the, those 25 years between the two telescopes observations. Um, and that acceleration is a clear sign of gravitational force, right? So there's some something moving the star, and that's potentially due to a long period companion, be it a star or a brown dwarf or a planet. 
And if you have an idea that there's a companion around a star, then you can image a star and hopefully find it in direct imaging. So, um, and by doing that, it's actually a much more efficient way of looking for, for directly imaged planets because uh, there was a recent survey called Copal, which uh, got a 40% hit rate. So they looked at a survey of, of these stars that had accelerations and 40% of them, they found companions, mostly brown dwarfs around those stars. So AF Leporis is a young star in the beta pick moving group. And because it's, you know, it's still in the process of formation and there's actually a debris disk that's been imaged around the star at 50 AU. And because it's so young, it's actually a really good direct imaging target, right? Because the planets are still, well, they're very young as well. And so they've just formed and they still have this residual formation heat. And that may, means they're glowing a lot brighter in the infrared and therefore easier to spot. So three teams independently looked at this acceleration catalogue and found that this star, AF-LEP, potentially seems to have a companion around it. One of the teams is from Austin, Texas, another led by a researcher in Padova, Italy, and a third led by someone from ESO. And so because they suspected a planet or brown dwarf around this star, they observed them with, with the largest telescopes we have on the ground. So one team used NIC 2 on Keck in Hawaii, and the latter two used uh, the Sphere instrument, which is on the ESO's very large telescope in Chile. And so the Keck observations, which were published in the Franzen paper, those actually spanned more than a year and saw what they expected. They saw a point source of light exactly where it was predicted from astrometry, because you can even predict the location doing that. And they found that they were even able to see orbital motion in that point over the observations that, they, that spanned one year. And then the VLT observations, which were only uh, last year, so they weren't able to see orbital motion, but because the sphere has better colour information, they were able to get initial atmospheric characterization for this object. And interestingly, it seems to span what's called the LT transition, so these two types of brown dwarfs. But it is a planet, so because we have this astrometric measurement and because we have now an observation of where the planet is and what its orbit is, we can combine the two and we actually get this dynamic mass for the planet. So this is the this, this smallest planet that this uh, technique has been done for. It's only 3.5 Jupiter masses, and it's on a very close in-orbit around its star uh, for, for these types of planets, for these directly imaged planets, at only 8.4 AU. So that's somewhere between Saturn and Jupiter in our own solar system. And compare that to some of the previous detections where they found planets at 20 or 50 AU, so much, much further out, which was obviously much easier to detect. So this is, you know, a pretty small and close-in planet for direct imaging to be finding, and it's really helped by the power of this Gaia astrometry to predict where we might be able to find some of these, these directly imageable planets, uh, as well as to be able to weigh those planets too, so give, give us a mass. So I'm sure there'll be similar detections to come, especially with the raw Gaia DR4 and DR5 data, and potentially the new generation of extreme adaptive optics on the biggest telescopes. Um, mm. So I'm sure that this, this technique will you know, directly, directly image planet number might be catching up at some point soon. Nice. So this is a fairly bright star. It's got a lot of information known about it, right? So how many more stars have we got access to that can be done with so many simultaneous kind of techniques? Do we know that number? I guess, it, I mean, the problem is that there's lots of stars that have accelerations and that, that we could potentially look at, but mm. there's very few young stars. Right. And, and at the moment, we're only really able to find planets around young stars because that's where the planets are still glowing very bright. The difference will be in five years' time when we have ELTs, you know, these, these 35 meter generation telescopes with much, much better imaging, much, much better advanced uh, adaptive optics. Those will be able to go after giant planets like Jupiter, you know, old, cold, giant planets. And so at that point, 
potentially we're talking about hundreds of characterized planets, you know, with spectra that were found through astrometry in this way. I think that's the most coherent of three papers summarized that we've had for for a while. You are forgiven. It helps when they're all near identical. (laughs) (laughs) That draws to a close our little news episode. Don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we just chat about how our various careers have been going and what what science the three of us have been up to. So um, check that out wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. Each coffee is only four bucks and each donation over 15 will get you a shout out on the show. And a big thank you to all our past donors. You can get your hands on Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, etc. on exocast.threadless.com. We're edited by Fergus Hall and... Exocast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Chaos Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Burbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.